Great Sugar Booger, ladies and gentlemen, season four of Chewing the Gristle. We've got some magnificent guests queued up and ready to roll. Of course, Chewing the Gristle, it's guitar-oriented, but we talk about whatever. Can you dig it? And this glorious broadcast, if you will, is brought to us by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing you such a variety of glorious instruments, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. And our friends at Fishman Transducers in beautiful Andover, Massachusetts, providing all kinds of -of state-of-the-art accoutrement to take your acoustic instrument and fire it up to blast people's brains into submission. And of course, their pickups, especially those with the Gristletown moniker, are fantastic. Let's get to it, folks. This week on Chewing the Gristle, we've got the mighty Johnny Highland, an individual I've known for quite a long time. I've always been astounded at his Telecaster manipulations, his chicken picking fricassee par excellence. And what a nice guy, always fun to talk with. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we got Johnny Highland. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to yet another installment. In Chewing the Gristle, we have the mighty and majestic Johnny Highland. Telly Tickler extraordinaire, really all guitar Tickler extraordinaire. And we actually had a very nice conversation a while back, but unfortunately the program I was using decided to make the audio so intelligible that we have to reunite, which is good and bad because it was so fun talking with you the first time. We will just recreate the majesty once again. How you doing out there? I am wonderful, brother, and I'm so glad to see you again. Likewise, my friend. We talked about all yeah. kinds of different stuff last time. You know, one thing I, it comes to mind is that um, we had a good long discussion about the thumb pick and, yes. uh, and how, unfortunately, you, you ran into some hand trouble. So you had to go to the thumb pick. And I was kind of remarking that, you know, so many of the guitar players that we grew up, you know, listening to and trying to figure it out what they're doing, anyone from, you know, Chet Atkins to, you know, Brett Mason to Jerry Reed, to Lenny Bro, Tommy Emanuel, so on and so forth. All these guys are able to do so much technical virtuosity as a result of that first finger being freed up by using the thumb pick. And, and so, unfortunately mine's not. Oh, so you can't, so you're, th- so you can't use your first finger. Right. That's, that's the one that's giving me trouble. But to be honest, Greg, I went back to brash one day, man. And I said, I said, Tom, for some reason, dude, it's the index finger that's giving me the most trouble. And he said, well, dude, he said, how do you think the claw came about? He said Jerry Reed had an arthritic index finger too, so he would tuck it, tuck it underneath, and that's when Chet said, "Jerry, you look like you're playing with a claw, son." Oh no, kidding! So, so he said, "Don't worry about that index finger, boy. Just do it the way you used to. You're just not gripping a flat pick. You're just letting that index finger free." Oh no, kidding! Yeah, so I was all worried that I was going to be doing something wrong or lacking in something, or and Tom's like, "No, man, no. Jerry Reed didn't use his either, so don't worry about it." Oh, that is a fascinating yeah. tidbit right there. Yeah, man, it's and it's still it's still remarkable because I really do wish I could use it. Because sure. I see the advantage of having it. But when I, you know, and really my problem stemmed Greg is that I couldn't put pressure on the bottom of a flat pick anymore. Got it. 
And so really this finger just kind of flows free, man. I don't tuck it under like Jerry did, but, but at the same time, it's pretty useless for me uh, in playing nowadays, but Hey, she hangs out there, man. And if I guess if I ever get the strength back in it or whatever, I'll, I'll start using it. But right now, no, she just, Hanging free, brother. Hanging free. Well, it's amazing that uh, where there's a will, there's a way. We will not. No, be, right. We will not be inhibited by the uh, forces forces of nature or evil. <laughs> you got that right, my friend. That ain't happening. That's not happening. It's kind of funny. Years ago, you know, when I first started playing, I play guitar all the time, and I used to hold the pick with my um, with my thumb and first and middle finger, and so oh. I was, and and it was kind of a weird thing, but that's the way I did it. And then I played. Um, I broke the middle finger on my right hand playing basketball. I don't want to give anyone any illusion that I was good at basketball. I simply was, I was playing it just because I'm tall. does not well, mean I was going to say, you got the hype, brother. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was average at best, but I did enjoy kind of playing it for fun. And I busted my middle finger. And so I had it in a little splint. And, oh. uh, and so that actually was a good thing. Because after that, you know, because I had to get used to playing with just my first finger and my thumb on the pick. And so then later on, that came in handy uh, right. with using my middle finger. But it's kind of funny because I, if I look at the videos of me playing, this middle finger still jets out because I'm, I, it was in that splint. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, man. Well, Greg, I have to ask, man, when did you use those big triangular picks, man? Because you got some fingers on you now. Uh, you know what? I, I tried using those, but for the longest time, I just used uh, Fender Mediums. Yeah, me as well. But how did you get your middle, your index and middle finger on that pick? I have no idea. I, I, I mean, they were kind of draped over. I think it was kind of a, it was kind of a messy looking affair. But it, uh, it worked. But almost a, almost a protection mechanism, though, so you don't drop it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. Well, it's just you know, it's funny because the whole you know, pick thing was an interesting thing to me because I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, when I was. When I was first starting to learn and then, you know, first few years of playing, you know, so many of my, you know, my particular idols at the time were mostly blues guys, you know, and, uh, and blues and rock guys. And I, and that was before, you know, YouTube, obviously. And it was really, it was really kind of, um, MTV had just come out. So we could finally see they, on Sunday nights, they would show movies of, uh, like Jimmy plays Berkeley and the, the goodbye cream concert and, and, uh, uh, and Zeppelin song remains the same and yes songs and all this kind of stuff. So we could finally see what these guys were doing. And, and, and I would right. watch these guys hold the pick and it's like, especially like Hendrix and Clapton, it's like almost everything was downstrokes. They weren't really doing alternate picking unless they were strumming chords, you know? Right. Right. And so for the longest time, I mean, I couldn't even tremolo pick, you know what I mean? I just, and I was like, well, why do I need to do that? And so as I got learning to, you know, more jazz stuff per se, and then going to school where I, I, I had to, you know, okay, well, let's do a, a major scale and an alternate pick all every note, and like, alternate pick every note. It was like really, really hard to figure out how to do that. And, and I, I started, and then I started going on the pick patrol. I think we all go on the pick adventure. Yeah. It's gotta be, it's gotta be the pick, right? Yes, it does. And you know, man, it's funny. I always went back to a fender medium until I, you know, it's funny. My pick journey was weird because I played fender mediums all the way up until about 2009 and then I switched to Dava picks, which were the ones that had the three lines where you could go from medium, middle, medium to light oh, just by moving your thumb. 
and they were rubber gripped. So when you go out, so and it was actually because of playing outside stages, you know, in the summer when you sweat real bad. So I went to the Dava picks because they were rubber gripped. And and then after that, when I started my hand troubles early on, I went to V picks. And man, I was playing some pretty insane thick picks there, brother. But man, they're just and then, of course, the thumb pick came on, and I spent about four or five hundred bucks in thumb picks before I found the Fred Kelly slick pick. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, man, you're right, dude. We all go through a pick journey for sure. Yeah, and I, I but, found that the heavy picks for for whatever reason with a pointy edge did it for me. And uh, no but, then, but then, but then every now and again, I'd go back to a medium, and, and there was something about that give of that pick. Ah, yeah. That adds that it does something to the tone, whether you're comping or playing leads or whatever, or raking the strings, that little flap, it has a thing. So they all have their thing. Well, you know, Greg, the funny thing is too, brother, is, you know, we went through a phase and I'm sure you did too, where, and I know all guitar players out there went through this, but we went through the age of noiseless pickups, ISP decimators, yes, uh, which I, which I still use to this day, but there's there's something to be said about the size of your pick, meaning is it going to have any flexibility or not? Because that changes the tone. Right. Then when you start using noiseless pickups or you start using a decimator, you start killing some of the mojo of your tone by removing some buzz or hum or harmonic overtones or, you know, and, and then I listen back to Stevie Ray or Hendrix and you hear all of that. Right. So it's like, man, you don't want to kill all the mojo, man, you know? Yeah, it's, so it's, I think I went through that phase as well. Yes, indeed. It's, I mean, it's, there's always, I mean, the quest, the quest never ends. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing because I, um, I was thinking about how, you know, I mean, it's, it, whatever works for folks works for folks. But, I, you know, with, with Jeff Beck passing, what was interesting, I was always a huge Jeff Beck fan. I mean, yeah, man. It, it was, uh, it, you know, it's one of those things where I was influenced by him is just as, as early as it gets, you know what I mean? I'm, and I, and it was, um, you know, I mean, we could talk about Jeff Beck forever, but the interesting thing about it is, is that he used, you know, noiseless pickup. He used lace sensors for years and then he switched to wow. the noiseless pickup that, yeah. that Fender had, but you know, you just find a way to make stuff work, but I know what you're saying. I mean, there, there, there is definitely, I mean, when you play, you know, old, like when I play my 53 telly, uh, it's, you know, it sounds glory. The neck pickup is microphonic as hell, right? So I, I, oh, can't, yeah. I can't add too much gain to it or else it'll howl like a pig, but man, clean, yeah. it sounds so great. And, and so, so there's, there's a whole thing with just the old school stuff as well. And then there's the, you know, my pickups that I did with Fishman, which I really like that, that I use, I gig with because I find myself in situations where I just don't know what the noise is going to be. And plus they have, they have that extra boost on it, but, but to your point, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's just an organic goodness about the old school stuff that yeah. just, that just is what it is. And well, it, I got, and I got to say, Greg, I started back in the day with this, with the same thing, man. I used lace sensors. I used, you know, some noiseless pickups when I was with Fender. And then I, of course I get into the Joe Barton phase because of right. Gatton, you know, yep. but yep. then what happened to me was in 2008, Billy Magella from Electric City Pickups in Waymark, Pennsylvania, designed my signature set of pickups. And what people need to realize is all through my, the end of my PRS days going into the Music Man days was all my SIG pickups. And now, of course, they're in my Johnny Highland model Teasel, which obviously is back to the, to the T-style, you know, right. maple again. So 
I'm so glad that those pickups have been with me that long. And then what I did is said, all right, I love the mojo I get out of real single coil pickups. Right. You know, the bridge pickup, obviously having a base plate like a telly. Right. And because I didn't go with any ashtray bridge or anything like that. So, but then going and realizing, like you said, in different venues, you have different hum, different noise. Right. So I ended up starting to use an Amp RX brown box for voltage regulation, which did cut the hum down. And then put an ISP decimator on my board, which helped then again. So Oh, excellent. I got you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So but my mojo is still in those pickups, man. And if I need that, I can I can roll that decimator back and let some of it in, brother. So you know. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. So going back, you know, I know we talked about this this last time, but since we're doing this all over again. So when you what was your first main guitar? I mean, when you started to do gigs, not, you know, I mean, you know, we all had the guitars we were kind of learning at, but when you first started to do gigs, what was, what was your rig back in the day? Believe it or not, Greg, I had gone, my dad took me to see Ricky Skaggs at the Bangor Auditorium when I was 10. Ah. And I had played bluegrass all the way up until then, you know, had an old Gibson. I had a, my, my first guitar really for an acoustic guitar was a 1939 J35 jumbo. Man. That was my dad's father's guitar, and and I just drugged that thing everywhere and started playing guitar by singing songs and you know learning to play banjo and fiddle and mandolin and playing bluegrass. But after hearing Ricky Skaggs, man, I told Dad, I said, "Look, I need an electric guitar now." <laughs> you know? So I wanted a Telecaster, and of course, we went to Northern Kingdom Music in Bangor, Maine, and at the time, man, uh, that was in 1985, so. You know, it was, well, I, I guess the guitar I got ended up with, it was a 1987. However, after seeing Skaggs in 85, in that time frame was when the Fender made in Japan models were huge. Right. But my dad would not buy anything with made in Japan on it. He was a buy American kind of guy. <laughs> and so we went to Northern Kingdom, dude, and they didn't have any maple neck Telecasters in stock. They had a few made in Japan ones, and dad's like, no. So I ended up, man, with this charcoal gray Fender American Strat. And dad, I remember dad having a, a red hot lace sensor put in the bridge. And I had a roller nut put in it at the store before it went home. So I had the roller nut, the lace sensor. And then later on, it took on a Wilkerson trim. And But that's really it. I mean, other than that, the guitar stayed pretty stock. But I wore that guitar flat out, Greg. I mean, honest to God, brother, I know you've probably seen this too, but I practiced so hard on that Strat. And I didn't buy my first Tele till I was 16, and I bought it out of an Uncle Henry magazine, Buy, Sell, Trade magazine up in Maine. And a guy was selling a USA Tele with a rosewood board for 300 bucks, so I bought it. Right. And that's what I went to Nashville with. But that old gray Strat is still with me to this day. And, dude, I practiced so hard on that guitar that I wore all of the lacquer completely off the neck. <laughs> to the point at which my first tech literally like took all the frets out, cleaned all the, cause you know, on each side of the fret was just little flakes of lacquer, you know? And so he cleaned all that up and then tongue oiled it for me and made it all nice again. And that guitar is actually soon to go to my nephews. Oh, no so, kidding. Awesome. Yeah, I'm giving it to my nephews, man. Kimmy and I didn't have children, so the nephews get it. Ah, nice. Uh, but I still have that old Strat, and dude, it sounds amazing. But I will say, I you know I've loved Telecasters all through my life because obviously all of our heroes, Danny Gatton, and of course mine being Ricky Skaggs, Steve Warner, Vince Gill, guys like that. Right. They yeah. all played Tellys. Yes. 
But as a matter of fact, man, in, in, uh, when I moved to Nashville in 96, I, you know, I had some really nice tellies in the day. Um, but my buddy Keith Driver bought me a 91 Floyd Rose Strat, dude. And I swear that guitar had the o- almost oranged out maple neck. Like it really felt vintage. Nice. And but it was a candy apple red Floyd strat that I called Red Rose, and she is my main squeeze strat that I will never part with. Ah, interesting. In fact, Vi signed the end of the headstock. He really loved that guitar. And uh, but it's got a Jeff Beck. We were talking about Jeff Beck. It's got one of the Jeff Beck Duncans in the bridge. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then two old gold dot magnet lace sensors. Nice. So so anyway, I still love that strat and uh course now that i'm a kiesel boy i'm i'm all kiesel all the way but sure, i understand but yeah. yes i have a few i have a that old strat probably and my gray strat are probably the only two fenders i have left huh i hear yeah. you it's yeah. amazing how things come and go am i right <laughs> but it's amazing how you know and you know this too greg because you've had years and years of strat playing too yep but a telecaster always kind of felt uniformed yeah but from the 50s to the 60s to the 70s and then 80s, the strats always felt different in the, in the way the volume knob hit the back, the bottom pickup, stuff like that. And so I felt like the 60s strats felt better because you could kind of get your arm down in between that volume knob without rolling it. Ah, interesting. And so I was really fussy with strats, dude, which is just blows my mind to this day. But, well, but it's yeah. funny you should say that because I – the first telly I got, I think I was like 15 and, uh, yeah. and I, and I bought it for my guitar teacher at the time. And prior to that, I had like a, a Fender lead one, which was one of those, oh, just that dude, one humbucker and bag. Right. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and it's not that I wanted a, a telly. It's just that I really wanted a Strat because being a huge Hendrix fan and like, you know, and Derek and the Domino's era Clapton, I just adored Jeff Beck, yeah. and, and Jeff Beck and, and, and Mark Knopfler is really into. So I really wanted a Strat, but all that was really offered to me at the time that made sense was this 68 Telecaster. What I really wanted more than anything else was the neck pickup on a Fender guitar. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. At that particular yeah. point in time. So I got that telly and I just practiced. It was the same thing as you're talking about with your, with your gray strap. I just wore that thing out, just playing it. Cause that was just, you know, you're practicing all the time in, in that early stage. Right. Yeah. And so by the time I got my hands on a strat, uh, a friend of mine, um, actually it was my, uh, uh, my sister's friend from high school had a husband who had a 65 strat who didn't play anymore. And he just let me use the guitar for a while. And it just, I couldn't get next to it. It just didn't feel right. Cause I was so used to just the simplicity of a Telecaster. It's like, you yeah. know, at that time, a lot of times, you know, I'd, I'd build my solos up on the neck pickup, you know what I mean? Go to the bridge pickup when you're going for the money shots, you know, comping yeah. a lot of time in the middle position. You got three sounds. They're all good. It stays in tune, you yes. know, and, and, and as I like to say, you know, at the end of the, t- at the end of time, after the, the zombie apocalypse, there'll be Telecasters and cockroaches and the tellies will be in tune. <laughs> That's the truth, man. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, it, it, I'm sorry, I think ahead. what's funny for me though, Greg, is I didn't realize how much a strat. I, I'll always say that I'm a telly guy, always, or a T style guy. But I got to be honest with you, I didn't realize how much a strat influenced me. Oh yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And I know, I know the color of things really affected this blind boy too. And I was so pissed at my dad because my first strat was this ugly charcoal gray. 
And and I remember, man, being in the music store because I was, you know, I was 11, 12 years old. That dad pulled me out of junior high for a half a day so I could drive two hours to the local music store to go pick out a, a telly. And then ended up with this ugly charcoal gray strat that I wanted the red one. <laughs> but dad, of course, being the man he was, he's like, look, he happened to know the guy that owned the store. And he's like, play these two American strats and see which one plays better. You know, better hardware, better feel, better everything. Right. So Dana played him and said, there you go, Tommy. It's the, it's the you know, the gray one is definitely far superior. So but what was so funny is I was almost throwing a head fit, but I wasn't. I wasn't that kind of kid. But I remember just dad could see me scratching my head going, man, I want that red one, <laughs> you know? And I think that's why the, when Keith bought me the charcoal or the, when he bought me the, the uh, candy apple red Floyd Strat, then I was in love, dude, you know? Yes. But, but I remember dad doing everything he could when I was a kid to, uh, like Dana actually showed me a, a guitar player magazine with Clapton holding a charcoal gray Strat. Uh, I remember so that. Then, yeah. So then everything was good. Right. Okay, charcoal gray's cool. Clapton plays one. Right. <laughs> so, so then what dad did for me is he found an aftermarket American flag style pit guard. Ah. And so he, so he brought some color and pop to that gray guitar by putting an American flag pit guard on it. So Nice. So but I remember those small things, man, because how you could the thing I loved about Fender guitars back in the day was that you could you could change them up. Right. Even though the body was the color, you could change the pick guard, you could change the pickup covers, you could change the knobs, you could change anything to a different color. Right. Absolutely. And of course, as you know, back in the 80s, man, everything was neon green, neon pink. Oh, yeah. You could do all kinds of things. So, But to this day, though, but I really still love that old Strat, and I'm glad the nephews are going to have it. But, but in making my Johnny Highland JH6, a Strat had a lot to do with how this guitar feels and plays. Because obviously I did the three single coils that are strat sized. And then we, use, then we use strat knobs and then the arm contour of a strat, even on the JH6 with a, you know, that's a tally style. Right. So then again, man, I, but then again, I know that if I had redesigned the Johnny model more like a stock telly with just the slab body, it now would not feel the same to me. So the strat had a lot to do with that wild and uh so it is wild man i i just drives me crazy even thinking about it to this day <laughs> you know when you mentioned ricky skaggs i that was you know i didn't grow up listening to, to country music you know i it just wasn't in my purview and i remember hee-haw used to be on and i'd be scratching my head going what the hell's going on in that cornfield you know I just, yeah man it was it was no, just one of those things i mean i was a pagan rock warlord you know what i mean and, right but there were there were two things that well three things really and they were all english guys it was you know, I heard Albert Lee on this Clapton record in 1980, that Just Run right. Night record, and that pretty much started it. And then it was hearing Mark Knopfler play on the first couple Dire Straits record. I was like, man, that that plucky chicken-picking thing is awesome. And then Ray Flack, who played with uh, Ricky Skaggs. Yeah. And I remember in the 83, I think it was, that record Highways and Heartaches came out. And I remember getting yep. that record and just scouring it. Uh, to try to learn what he was doing. I was going to ask you, was he an influence on you? Matter of fact, dude, I have a Telecaster pit guard on one on an old Whitfield telly I've got, yeah, a relic, that literally is Ricky Skaggs' Highways and Heartaches album. Oh, they nice. made me the, Yeah, they made me the pit guard because, I, man, I wore that album. For, I mean, I bet you I've had 10 copies of that record. Yeah, and the tunes are great. I mean, not oh, only... Fantastic. Fantastic, right. Yeah, yeah. 
But you're right, man. I, I tried to cop every Ray Flack lick I could learn. And then, but I was actually very impressed as well because right when I got to see Ricky live, Country Boy had just come out, which was after right. Highways of Heartaches. And Ray wasn't in the band when I saw him. Ricky was doing all the lead stuff, man. Right. And so I was just so blown away that him being the artist he was, meaning the vocalist and the, you know, hope fronting the show, that he could just rip up any instrument like that. And that so inspired me, man. I, I thought, man, well, I need to, you know, because at the time I was singing, you know, right. uh, quite, a, you know, in my whole show with my sister and brother, you know, we won Talent America and did all kinds of things when we were kids. But but it really inspired me to to want to become a better harmony singer. Like if I was going to play lead guitar in a band, I probably ain't going to be the main lead singer. I might get to sing a few a night, but I need to learn how to sing good harmonies and I need to learn how to. So it was great as I was learning my scales and theory because I was harmonizing to my own scale practice. Right. I got you. Stuff like that. So it really did help me to to have guys like Ricky to to be influenced by. Yeah, I remember uh, right around that time he put out that live in London record where he was oh. playing all the stuff on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Just scary. that cool Good kind stuff. of uh uh burgundy mist telly with the with the three pickups on the cover. Remember that? Yeah. Well, actually that it's it's a vi- it's like a violet purple. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he and I I've actually gotten to see that guitar, man. It's just it was a, it's a Joe Glazer telly. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and matter of fact, I didn't know until moving to Nashville that that Ricky's purple one, Steve Warner's red guitar, and jo- and Jimmy Olander's mother Maybell are all Glazier Tellys. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, man, pretty crazy. But you know, Joe Glazier being the guy that that kind of brought forth a new age B bender, right? I can totally understand why those guys. But I didn't even know they were using a B bender until I moved to Nashville, brother. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, I was still that naive kid in Maine that was trying to cop all those B bender licks without one. You know. Well, the interesting thing about a B-Bender, my first entree to a B-Bender was Jimmy Page. You know, I Jimmy Page I, used right. one, and, and I was like, what is this devilry? And then I knew Albert Lee used one on uh, Sweet Little Lisa on that Dave Edmonds record. Yes. And uh, that's and of course, how I Clarence got White, man. Yeah, and then, and then, but, you know, it was so weird. I, I didn't get into Clarence White till after those two guys. It was kind of backwards, right. but... Right. But I, what? I, I loved... Um, which again, I didn't find out about until later. Was a couple of live birds records, one live at the Fillmore, and there's another one. It just filled with like the coolest, tastiest, oh, bee bendery stuff. Which of course you can do without the, but it's just really glorious because he's just like blowing his wad over every one of the tunes, and it's glorious. Oh, it's <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. And, you know, and it's funny, Greg. I'm like you, but I like for me, everything was Ricky Skaggs, Vince Gill, and Steve Warner. And Albert Lee up until just before I moved to Nashville was when I learned about Danny. Right. And and it was like, you know, and then as I got into Nashville, man, it was Danny Gatton, uh, Jimmy Bryant. Right. Uh, and of course, Brent and Albert. And so it was like uh, everything shifted for me because in Maine, man, growing up from the age of 12 until 20, I had played in local bands in Maine, man, where I was just the lead guy singing harmony. Right, but I I was in three piece bands where I was playing all the rhythm and all the leads and the fills and the harmony vocals and all that, uh, and but then of course moving to Nashville, it was like okay, you're on stage with a steel player, a fiddle player, a, you know, right. So I had to learn how to essentially be a proper lead guitar player when I got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But of course that brought me back to Albert Lee Moore, Danny Gatton Moore. Uh, 
you know, because I, you know, I love watching the old videos of when Danny played lead guitar for Roger Miller. Yeah. I love that stuff, man. He played some incredible stuff with oh, Roger. He did Miller. indeed. But, you know, I, yeah. I found out about, well, I remember like in 1983, there was a, a rockabilly, because, um, you know, the Stray Cats had just, come, and so there was this rockabilly revival, right? Yeah. They had this thing where all these different gu- guitar players in there, like, who are the rockabilly guys that are kind of overlooked that are are touring around and doing stuff these days? And, you know, I remember it was like Sleepy LaBeef was in there, and then this guy, Danny Gatton. I remember, never forget the picture. Same with the telly. His hair was slicked back, and he had the beer bottle. And at that time, I think he was playing with Robert Gordon. Yes. And, and so it was talking about this guy. And I, and, and at that time, you know, I was like, where am I going to hear? It? It's not like, you, not like today where you could just go online and know oh, who is this guy and find out immediately, you know, you it would right. took some effort, you know, yes. to find the, the cool record store that would maybe even have the shit or else you'd have to, sh- you know, ship away for it. So yeah. I remember about two years later, uh, I was playing with this guy in town who, um, I was a young punk and he was an older dude that had this rock and roll, like old school, you know, rockabilly, but like, it also like rock pile stuff and Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe stuff. And, and, uh, and I was in his band and we were rehearsing and his brother was home who lived in New York, who was a writer. His name is Bill Milkowski. He's, you know, he wrote the Jaco Pistorius book. He's written for oh, all, all, the, all these different magazines, downbeat and so on and so forth. And so yeah. he hears me noodle around downstairs doing my, you know, whatever chicken picking I was doing at the time. And he comes downstairs. He's like, he's like, Hey, have you ever heard of Danny Gatton? And I said, well, you know, I remember reading about him in this magazine a couple of years ago, but I've never actually heard him. So right. he, he actually sent me a cassette of unfinished business and, um, and redneck jazz. So this would have oh. been about, this would have been about 1985, right? So, and I had them on cassette and that, and that's how I first learned about it. And I just, but, but then you're going, wait a minute. I thought Danny was rockabilly. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. But it's all this other stuff. And, right. and, uh, and that was right around the time too. I, you know, I, I really got into Roy B. I, I mean, it was weird because a lot of what I was influenced by, I'm sure you're the same way with your family, but it was the stuff I heard in the house. And my brother had this blues, you know, well, a rock and roll with blues tinged sixties oriented record collection, but for whatever right. reason, he didn't have any Roy, Roy Buchanan in there. So I missed Roy the first time around until yep. he started doing records for alligator in like 1983, that record came or 84 when, uh, that record, when a guitar plays, the blues came out. Oh, and I, yep. And I remember hearing that going, what is this? And then a year yep. or so later, I'm in college. I'll never forget. I was coming back from, um, taking a shower and I get into my room and I, they used to have this sneaky Pete's blues cafe on the college radio station. Yes. And, I, and I'm hearing this guitar and it sounds, it sounds to me like someone is doing like all the Hendrix moans and screams from machine gun, but on a telecaster, I'm like, this yeah. is gotta, this has got to be Roy Buchanan. And then that completely changed kind of the, it was like, Oh my God, I gotta, I gotta get, find out what's going on here. Was Roy a big influence on you as well? Or when Oh my exposed? gosh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but even still more from that country thing, because I had heard Roy first playing blues. Right. And it was like, oh, man. But then everyone was like, that. you know, obviously, Mac Wilson, my first manager, he had known Danny. Okay. And and he was like, yeah, him and Roy were kind of neck and neck up in the D.C. area, Virginia, you know. And I was just like, man, how could Danny and Roy be competitors, really, in a way? And... But then again, living in the same area, both being massively adept guitar players, I'm sure... So anyway, I got to hear a lot of good stories over the years from Mac, but even before Mac and before the Nashville thing, as I first moved to Nashville, starting to hang out with some of the guys there, 
was really when I would get turned on to something. Because growing up, man, my brother was into Nine Inch Nails and Rage Against the Machine and and my sister was into George Michael and, you know, new kids. <laughs> I'm like, nothing guitar related was in my house except for the fact that my dad really loved, uh, you know, the Outlaws, Blackfoot, Skinner. Got it. You know, all, all the kind of old Southern rock stuff that, you know, and the Outlaws, man, were huge to me because they still had that country edge, but yeah, still had harmony guitars yeah. and Really, I could I could hear the whole influence of the of the Helicasters coming from the whole Outlaws craze. Sure. And so I remember going to Northern Kingdom Music one day too, and Mike Rose, a dear friend of mine now, still love him to death. He was the tech there, and he gave me a Helicasters tape. And man, after hearing Jorgensen and and Will Ray and Jerry Donahue, then I was like, well, wait a minute, this right. is a whole different plateau than Ricky Skaggs and Vince Gill. Right. Right. So, so that kind of broadened my scope on country guitar playing with the respect of, oh, you can blend it with rock. You can blend it with blues. You can, you know, it doesn't have to stay traditionally zoned. Right. And so that's really kind of what spawned my whole style. And, and I guess, you know, dreaming of going to Nashville, I wanted to be a session guy. Right. So I knew that I was going to have to learn every genre. And but then again, I loved every genre. I mean, man, I was that kid going playing gigs on the weekends, taking my money and and going to Record Town in Maine and buying everything I heard on Headbangers Ball or <laughs> looking for Helicaster stuff or more Ricky Skaggs. And but it wasn't until Nashville, man, that I really realized I was going to be spending my money at Ernest Tubb Record Shop or Tower Records. And but I am grateful, Greg. You mentioned Hee Haw and Nashville Network. Austin City Limits was big when I was a kid. Absolutely, yep. Uh, but TNN, man, had a lot of shows. Like, one of my favorite shows was New Country because it would have a band on there live. And that's where I learned about bands like Southern Pacific with, you know, with John McPhee and just, man, just killer guitar playing. Right. So I really, but then again, I spent my, uh, from age 12 to 20, really kind of honing in all the newest top 40 country because that's what we played. Right. But in going to Nashville, then it was, hey, boy, if you don't know Webb Pierce and Farron Young and, and you know, if you can't play those. So I was going out buying all these traditional country records, but then sneaking down to Tower Records and buying Robin Ford's new one or some right. Larry Carlton or some Jimmy Bryant or some. Uh, so, I mean, I was always really grateful for the inspiration of all kinds of guitar music, you know, from Al Di Miola and Robin. Man, Robin Ford, I still love him to death. Man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. player. But but it's it's the influence of or taking the hodgepodge, if you will, of all guitar genres and trying to blend them into a style while you're living in a town where everybody's trying to copy Brent. Right. That was that was very interesting, man. I I was like, because I was going, man, I want to find my own sound, my own identity. Right. Because I saw everybody else reaching for the Brent thing and changing their tellies out to be like Brent's with the three knobs and the the humbucker in the neck and stuff sure. like that, you know? And so I just, I, I don't know. I, I really felt those first few years in Nashville before, you know, the whole Gary Chapman and the Grand Ole Opry thing happened for me and all that. I felt like I was really just searching an identity for myself Got it. and finding out what it could be to mix blues with country or, or to add some really heavy dirt and add chicken picking to that. 
Right. You know? So I, I think what's funny, Greg, is you and I got to meet shortly thereafter. And dude, you instantly became my favorite player and you've been one of my favorite players all along. Oh man. But, and I really do feel, man, you're like, you know, I just got to talk to Danny's brother, Brent, the other day on the telephone for the first time. And it's so funny, man, because I really feel like you and I are the guys that are still keeping Danny's legacy alive. You know, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of chicken pickers in the world, but I think you and I still love Danny so much that it just, it comes out of us. Yes, you know? no doubt. Well, and I, so I'm, I'm really proud for that fact too, man. And it's, it's just, uh, we got to love the folks that have influenced, you know, influenced us along the way. Like, Mixing Danny Gatton and Jeff Beck, dude. How cool is that? You yes, know? exactly. So, I mean, and I, dude, you do that so well, brother. So, oh, I, thank you so much. It's so a fun to fan, talk about. I've been a big days. fan of yours as well. I mean, it's just your your playing is astounding and always has. Oh, been. shoot, buddy! I, I I hang on for dear life. You know, honestly, Greg, it's funny. I can't see what I'm playing, dude. So I just have to pray really hard and hold on. <laughs> you know, that's what it is, man. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. But then again, I love the instrument so much, man. I can't. Even when I started these hand troubles, I was like, man, it, you, I'm not going to stop. So right. I, I'm going to have to find a natural way to get past this without surgery because I'm not stopping to play. Right. Awesome. You know, so it's, uh, so yeah, it's scary when that stuff happens to you, man. But I, I still was like, no, I, it, asking me to put a guitar down is, is just not, that's just not a, a good thing. So, I, understand. I, I, I wanted to ask you about, we, we, we talked about this the last time, but. I love this story about how, so you, you went to college and you were, is this, as the story goes, you had this term paper that you were, you were writing and then you said, yeah. it. I'm going to, I'm going to delete it and go down to Nashville. Would you mind reiterating that story? Well, now here's the funny thing, Greg, my mom and dad being overprotective parents, having a handicapped kid, it's understandable, but they were very overprotective of me in the respect that, you know, man, he's never really gone off on his own. We don't know how he's going to live independently. So when I went to college, I lived with my grandmother. God love her heart. She's sweet as she could be. And she was partially deaf, man. I mean, she was like, she could have literally been the commercial for Belltown, man. I mean, because <laughs> I could crank my guitar up in that bedroom, man, and and jam along to records. And, and I'd go in and say, Nan, am I bothering you? Hold on, dear. Ooh, you hear that Belto just screaming. You know, so it was awesome living with her. But what happened was my mom and dad and the state of Maine, obviously, the Maine Center for the Blind, they were like, look, we're going to get him into college to be. And my dad had this vision of me being an elementary school teacher so that in the summertime I could play in a band up home and have three months off to just play music. Right. And then teach during the school year. But then I also learned every instrument in the high school band. So he thought, well, maybe you could be a band director for the school and then play in a band on the weekends and during the summers. Well, dad had known all along, dude, my goal was to move to Nashville. So 
really, it still blows my mind that mom and dad got pissed when I left. But <laughs> I went through the first three years of college, Greg. And honestly, brother, I was a history major with a minor in elementary ed. And I loved going to college, but college was not like high school where every, you know, all of my teachers had all my homework blown or all my, you know, papers enlarged. Sure. Everything that was on the chalkboard was written down for me. And it, college isn't like that, as you know, man. I mean, it's professors really don't have to give a shit. Right. Right. You take their class, you get out of it what you do. And if you fail, too bad for you. Take it again, you know. So after three years, I had fought the good fight, man. I really did. But Johnny's day living with grandma pretty much consisted of practicing guitar 12 to 16 hours a day, maybe doing an hour of homework and then sleeping about five to six hours and going to school. <laughs> so, but guitar was my absolute life there. And because I lived with Nana who couldn't hear well, I mean, dude, I could, I could buy new gear and I'd take the Greyhound home and play in the band during the weekend. And then take the money I earned and go buy a new pedal or buy a, you know, I, like I remember my first Ibanez I bought because I had the Floyd Rose and the shark tooth inlay 24 fret neck. And right. hey, I'm going to need that as a session guy, you know. And so I always had an excuse for buying new gear. Huh? <laughs> and so, yeah, my three years were really just infused with making sure I was ready to be a Nashville studio cat. And after my third, and you know, I thought dad would let me leave, you know, by the time I hit 18, which obviously is right when you start college. And dad's like, no, 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 Slick, you ain't leaving until at least 21 when you can make up your own mind. And I'm like, well, damn it, that's just an excuse, you know? Right. So I turned 21 January of my junior year in college. And I literally was writing that term paper on the Civil War, drawn battle maps and everything. I still love you know, history and the civil war and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, man, I, I was really experiencing trouble at that time where I just didn't feel moved. I felt like I was living my life for my mom and dad and the state of Maine. It's like everybody's out, everybody else's eyes were on me to basically do what they all wanted me to. I got you. Yeah. And so I just felt like I was closed in in life. The band and my practicing were really the only, you know, uh, same times I really ever had during those years. And so when I turned 21, I just said, you know what, man, I'm going to have to just make this plunge for myself or it will never happen. Right. And so I just hit that delete key on that term paper and just watched it on the screen. And I went, oh shit, I'm done now. <laughs> so, so man, the funny th the funny part about the story that a lot of people don't know that will actually be put in my new autobiography I'm writing uh, is that I went down to college to formally withdraw. Somehow or another, one of my sister's best friends, because my sister moved in with Manitou and she was going to medical school to be a physical therapist at UNE. And one of her best friends saw me in the president's office of the school and then at financial aid resigning. And called my sister, who in turn called mom and dad. So they instantly sent the outreach worker from the state of Maine to Nana's house. You are not to leave college. And I'm like, I said, Chuck, you've worked with me since I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. I said, you come into this bedroom, man. I said, I've got about 1,400 CDs right here. I said, you pick any one of them you want. I will match the tone and match every note of the solo in that song. He said, really? And I said, yeah, he picked two of them. 
I'm in love with you, baby, and don't even know your name, which Brent played on Alan Jackson's record. Right. And he picked Joe Satriani, one big rush. I had the Ibanez and I had the telly. I matched the tones. I played the song all the way through, played the solos note for note. And dang it, if he didn't buy my plane ticket and called my parents and said, I can't talk him out of it, he's going. Ah. And, I just, and I just bought his plane ticket. <laughs> so, and then, in, and then the other thing, man, where I really feel like God's hand had a big part of it was I, I said to Chuck, I said, before I go down, man, I'm going to go home, spend a couple week with, weeks with my parents, even though they're pissed at me. It's just the right thing to do. And it's the respectful thing to do. Maybe I can talk them into to realizing why this is so crucial for me and, it's, and so important to make this plunge. Well, needless to say, it was crickets at the house. They were just fuming mad. And so in that two-week interim, my buddy Sid MacArthur, who played bass with me in Standing Room Only, our old band up in Maine, said, dude, I just went down to Florida. I lived down, I just moved down here, but I went to Nashville for a weekend. And he's like, dude, we kill it there. We need to go. So I changed my ticket from Nashville to Florida, went down with Sid. So that made mom and dad feel a little better because I had a buddy of mine who could help me get around. Got it. But Greg, I swear, bud, when we packed, and I didn't have that, I couldn't take all of my gear at one time. So I literally had the Strat and the Telly and a suitcase. And then I had my, my amps at the time shipped down with a pedal board. And we rehearsed in Florida for a couple of weeks, played a few clubs down there. And then we packed his Pontiac T-1000, dude. <laughs> Little tiny car, man. I mean, dude, by the time we packed all our shit in that, it looked like the Beverly Hillbillies go to Maui, dude. <laughs> Cowboy bitch hanging out the windows. You couldn't put a letter from home in that thing, man. I mean, it was slam-packed full. And we drove from Florida to Nashville and got there at four o'clock in the morning and stayed at a place called the Metro Motel on Dickerson Road. Buddy, there was hookers everywhere, cockroaches <laughs> in the rooms. I mean, I was like, oh my God, man, what did I do? We, I mean, there was nights we slept in the car and took showers at truck stops. I mean, dude, when I say I paid my dues, brother, I paid my dues. Right. Because <laughs> we didn't even get our first apartment till like the first seven months of being in town. And we slept in our car and literally got asked to leave parking lots by police. They would like follow us around. Oh, And Lord. so, oh, yeah, but it was hard. But I finally got my first apartment and then life got good. But I swear, though, by the first day we got there, Greg, we went down, sat in at the clubs that we could that allowed us to sit in. And by Sunday, that very next day, we had our first gig. Nice. So it was it was literally like the second day on. It was like, bam. I mean, it just hit to where we were working. Now, granted, didn't realize that in Nashville on Broadway, you made $20 per four-hour gig plus tips. So there was some days, man, we had 60 bucks between the both of us. You know, how are you going to get right. a room for that, you know? So, I mean, we lived in the car and ate bologna sandwiches, man, and did what we had to do. That's wild. And, uh, so yeah, brother, we 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 fought it, and uh, uh, we fought the law, and the law won. You know, <laughs> well, but now I'll you never find yourself in Virginia, right? So describe for me how long were you in Nashville, and then when you finally decide to move to Virginia, kind of talk us through that a little bit. Well, I lived in Nashville for twenty-two years. My wife actually went to Belmont College, and we met at Roberts Western World back when I played with Don Kelly which obviously that gig was really what spawned my whole artist career and everything. And I, I owe Don Kelly so much and brother Ronnie Lutrick and Artie Olenikoff and 
I mean, that band, man, I mean, Don Kelly was the guy that had Brent Mason, Troy Lancaster, Rod Riley, Kenny Vaughn, Red Vocart. I mean, so many killer players. And I was just so honored to take Red's place when he got the Haggard gig. But I lived in Nashville for 22 years, man, being a session guy and having the Johnny Highland band and starting my artistry and the Vi deal, the Shrapnel Records deal. And then, you know, went through, you know, four different managers and all kinds of stuff in my career. But as you know, Greg, from 2010 on, brother, well, even before that, but from 2010 on, you could really see the shift happening in Nashville where it was growing rapidly. And it's a sanctuary city, so a lot of people were moving in. And, uh, and of course, country music, since Shania and Garth and Rascal Flatts, I mean, country music was becoming more pop and more rock. Right. Which... In turn, man, I hate to say this from, from obviously everyone watching, possibly knowing my music, my music's all over the map. So for me to literally say I'm a, a traditionalist in my chicken picking and what I, what I love, living in Nashville, man, that's what I had always dreamed it to be. And in the 90s, it was. It was cowboy hats, boots, and you playing Farron Young, Webb Pierce, George Jones, Burl Haggard. Telecasters were huge. Right. And back then, you you know, throw your amp on the stage, plug your little pedal board in, and you play four hours and tear it down and go to the next club and do it again. Right. But now Nashville's become, you know, affliction, you know, T-shirts, buckle jeans, a Les Paul, in-ears, and a Kemper. Right. And I'm sorry, bud, but I just wasn't going to conform to the new Nashville way. I got you. Yep. So literally, I moved to Virginia with Kimmy because, well, for a few reasons. One, we needed to be close to family. And I lost my dad and mom between 05 and 07. Kimmy's family's been so welcoming to me, man. They've been so loving, and, and I just adore each of them so much. And, you know, her dad and Aunt Joanne are, you know, in their 70s now, so we, we want to have the time. And I love going fishing with dad and all that. But, but then the second reason is that it seems like traditional country is still huge up here. Got it. So now Red Vocart lives up here. Rod Riley, who played with Ricky Van and a bunch of people in Nashville, he lives up here. Keith Horn, the amazing bass player, lives up here. There's, it seems like there's a lot of Nashville guys that are moving to Virginia, which I guess uh, Kimmy and I started a trend. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, we started a trend, man. But I do love it up here. And thanks to my dear friend Kenny Thurman, I'm running a studio up here full-time engineering and playing all the instruments myself and and just loving life, man. I, I really am. And I mean, went through the whole COVID thing and everything. And I'm, I'm so glad, Greg, that I was up here when all that hit. Sure, absolutely. Versus absolutely. being in the big city, bud. You know what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you so, what. It's, it's a beautiful place, Virginia. And as a history buff, man, there's plenty of it there. Yes, sir. We're, not, we're really not that far from Appomattox, man. So as a Civil War buff, pretty cool to have gone there, man. It's really neat. That's wild. Yeah. You know, appar apparently, uh, I was doing some genealogy. So the, the first... The first Koch that came over from Germany was Johannes, and he was actually in the Union Army, and he lost an arm at the at uh, uh, at Sharpsburg, as we like to say. Or uh, yeah, and then he uh, ended up being in um, Grant's staff and was with him at the Appomattox Courthouse when they really yeah. yes. Well, what you can want? still go. You should you should go see that sometime, Greg, when you come visit me. Which uh, I know absolutely. you're on the road and traveling and stuff, brother, but if you ever get a chance to come this way, you know, Red literally lives 108 miles from my house, dude. So we could 
We oh, could both. Uh, that'd be awesome. With you. Yeah, we'd love to have you, man. I know Redwood too. Oh, that would be a blast. Yeah, that'd be so fun, bud. We need to. We just need to get together and record some, have some fun. I would absolutely love that. Yeah, I would as well, man. It'd so, be a blast. Uh, but yeah, Virginia's. You know, Virginia's great, man. And I do miss. I, I guess I don't want to come off sounding jaded or or pissed or anything like that. But you know, brother, change is inevitable. Right. And so I don't blame Nashville for going through the change. I guess what I'm disgusted about is the fact that everybody talked about music coming around. It evolves and then it comes back around and evolves. But there's really no, there's really no uh, recurrence, if you will, of traditional country music. In fact, Telecasters are barely played in Nashville now. Right. Uh, and I remember before Kimmy and I moving up here, man, we heard Brad Paisley on WSM radio, you know, which is, you know, Grand Ole Opry. Right. He said, man, the record label is making me take my own solos out of my own songs. Oh, for the love of God. And Brad's like, how can I be Brad Paisley, the guitar player and the artist that I am and remove guitar solos from what I do? Right. So I'm, you know, I guess I allowed myself to watch the change happen for as long as I could. And then, you know, the last session I got in Nashville, man, was with a Les Paul and a half stack and a looper pedal. And I, I don't know, Greg, I just, I just said, Kimmy, I think this is it, babe. I think, you know, I think my run of what I've really loved Nashville to be is over and really haven't seen any, uh, you know, any change or evolution where it was going to come back around to being more traditional country again. Right. And right. everyone you talk to in Nashville is like, oh, that ain't going to happen, dude. So I just said, bye-bye. You said, see you later, alligator. See you later, alligator. Well, you so, know, what's interesting is I, as I'm finding from finally, you know, getting on the road a bunch in the States. I mean, for years I did all kinds of different stuff to make a living, you know, playing, but it, was, it wasn't a traditional path. You know, the only real touring we did with with the band was in Europe because I had an agent that would put things together for us over there. And so I would do that, you know, once or twice a year, go over there. And then other than that, it was like, you know, gigging regionally here and there with the band, maybe going out and doing like a one-off here and there. But for most of the time it was clinics, you know, yeah. doing videos and all that other kind of stuff. So now in the last year, now that COVID is finally retreated enough, you can go out on the road and actually not have things canceled and so on and so forth. Right. Um, I'm finally realizing that, you know, I could just go out on the road and make dough as the band. But you know, the thing is that having established this identity over, you know, 25, 30 years, whatever it is, yeah, you know, people come out and they want to hear you play. And, and, you know, they're not, they're not saying, Oh, is, is it blues? Is it country? Is it jazz? They don't care. They're, they're just like what you do and they'll come out. And so in, in some ways it's, it's it's better now than ever for people like us because we can go out and and as long as we can use social media to meet to reach the people that we know are going to like what we do yes we really don't have to worry about how old we are you know what i mean what we right. look like per se right. you know what i mean they're just people are going to want to hear what we do and you know and you keep things um you know uh lean enough as far as the you know your overhead and whatnot and by God, you can go out, see the world, make some dough, interface with people that love music and 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 be kind of freed of all those trappings that the music industry, we kind of thought we had to deal with, but really don't. You know what I mean? Right. Well, 
I have something that I'm not going to talk about live on the show with you, but there is something I do need to speak to you about uh, that I ha- that I'm actually currently working on this year. Now, I'll just say this, man. As you know, with the hand troubles, I haven't really just formatted a tour for the Johnny Highland Band this year. Right. I have been going out doing gigs with dear friends of mine up here in the Virginia area where, you know, let's see how long I can play standard lead guitar for a guy. How does it feel? How do my arms feel? Can I do a Johnny Highland thing? Just kind of breaking myself back out there. Uh, and But there is something I'm working on that's that literally could lead into something huge, Greg, that I do need to talk to you about. Excellent. But, but then again, it's getting back on the road for me is hard because since leaving Nashville, no more managers, publicists, any of that. And I'm going to have to reestablish myself with a new agent. Sure. And I have not done that yet. That's something I'm working on this year. But I'm thankful to all the fans out there because they are writing saying, well, man, when can I see you in Denver? When can I see you right. in L.A.? When, you know, yeah. so I'm so great, grateful for social media interaction where fans can get a hold of me and write to me. And and I am grateful that the fact now people really do want to see us play. Right. You know, and I think that's fantastic. So so I don't want anyone to think that I'm not working on something. I really am. I'm just not able to to open the can of worms just no, yet. No, I understand. I but understand. but I'm very excited about what's gonna happen in the future, man. You know, within by the end of this year, early next year. So I've I've got something uh all you all you chicken pickers better look out, man. Something big gonna happen. So excellent. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I think you're right though, Greg. I think it's been a blessing, man, that social media has allowed us to work our way through COVID and other things. Even me with my hand troubles, man, even though I could not go out, even if I wanted to, social media still allows the platform where we can reach our fans, play for them, have fun. Right. Exactly. And, and I'm real blessed about that brother, big time. And having my studio and doing full band tracking for people has been a huge blessing. So a big thank you to all my endorsers and, of course, to Mr. Kenny Thurman for being so kind. And uh, Kenny Man was the guy. He was the sound man for the Opry, for Vince Gill, you know, Mike Henderson and the Blue Bloods, Joe Diffie, Mark Chestnut, all the big country guys. And he literally lives 16 miles down the road from me here in Virginia, dude. So well, I, I tell got you what, that track you sent me sounded awesome. Well, brother, that ain't even mixed yet. It's That's just raw board tracks from my studio. Awesome. So yeah, man, when it gets mixed and mastered, hopefully it'll it'll sound like something. But but I'm just you know I'm having so much fun, Greg, playing all the instruments I used to when I was a kid, bringing them back, and really being 150 percent creative. And if I get no, I get hit with a song at three o'clock in the morning, I can go cut it. Right. Exactly. You know. So it's fantastic, brother. I'm just loving life more than ever, and I. And I know this sounds weird, but as as a forty eight year old man, I just turned forty eight on the eighteenth of January. Aha, happy but, belated happy well, birthday! Well, thank you, brother. But I can tell you this: I'm more creative right now in my life than I've ever been, and I am literally now with all the Nashville stress and managers and publicists and everything off my back. I literally feel like I'm not the bug under the thumb anymore. I'm that little kid getting my my first guitar all over again. Yeah. That excitement, dude, is what I think the business sucked out of me. I got you. And now I'm gaining that all back again. So what a what a rejoicing time for the old Gipper here. Well, good for you. You know, that just speaks to the fact, I mean, again, to get back to the, you know, the Jeff Beck thing. I mean, it was very sad that he 
that of course he passed so unexpectedly, but at the same time, he was as, he was as good as he ever was right up to the point he died. And that can be, and that's really the lesson that I think is great for all of us is that, you know, you know, you can continue because of the love of the music and, and, and all that's good about it, as opposed to getting, I mean, cause he was, you know, he was a contemporary, obviously of, of Clapton, who's, you know, sold gajillions of records and he was buddies with yep. Jimmy Page and, you know, arguably Jimmy Page's idea for Zeppelin came from the first, you know, Jeff Beck group, you know, so he had yeah. plenty, plenty to be, you know, kind of salty about, if you will, but, you know, was like, hey, I'm just going to continue doing what I do in my vision. I don't really care if it, you know, ever gets to the point where everyone knows who I am, but in doing so, he established this unbelievable legacy Yes. Of glorious music, not just guitar playing, but just glorious music. And as I said, he was as good as he ever was right up to the point that he died. So that's right. That to me is the real lesson. Well, and you know, Greg, I think Jeff Beck enabled all of us guitar players to see too, you know, you know, I've, I've talked with some, you know, obviously I teach guitar a lot of times too. And to be honest with you, man, some of these kids, you know, they have, big dreams of the record deal and the stadium shows and this, that, and the other, and the money and the sex, drugs, rock and roll thing, you know, but in a country music way. Right. And of course the modern country music way is rock and roll. So, right. Exactly. But what I'm getting at though, is these kids have these massive, massive dreams. And what I tell them is, look, as long as you're creating what's in here, what's true to you, what you feel you can give to people who, you know, get yourself out there so people can hear you and build your fan base over time. But I'm like, it's really not about how big or famous or rich you can be. It's what are you trying to say with the music that you're putting out? And I've had to learn that, that lesson myself, man. Yeah. I've, I've headlined the Opry. I've done everything in my life I've wanted to do, but I'm not done playing music, brother. I, okay. Yeah. I got hand troubles and I'm middle-aged now, but it's like you said, it's not about how famous can we get? It's what kind of legacy are we going to leave? When we, when we do go home, you know? And so I always tell people I'm, you know, the internet says I'm worth X amount of money or like, I think the last time I checked, they said I was worth 1.5 million. And Greg, that is a, that's a joke, brother. Yeah, I know. I see similar things. I'm like, boy, I wish I had the money they say I have. Yeah, me too, man. (laughs) And you you know, you kind of laugh about that, but, but at the same time, man, I, I want everybody watching to know as well. I'm, so grateful for the people and the companies that have endorsed me over the years. Cause when I moved to Nashville, I didn't even have a hundred bucks in my pocket. Right. And all through my career, man, it, you know, I have built this enormous family of people who believe in what I do enough to support me with the gear. I need to be Johnny Highland. Uh, and you know, my new Kiesel JH six, man, I love that. I've been with Kiesel about six years already and I will be buried with one of these, man. I love this guitar. Excellent. But but to be honest with you, and I finally found my guitar home, you know. Um, but to be truthful with you, Greg, I'm now, man, I think uh, it's just about, you know, paying back the people that have helped get me where I am now. I think I'm at that stage of my life where it's like, look, I just want to, uh, you know, I'd love to be able to call Jeff Kiesel. Like, I'm in Virginia. He's in California in Escondido. But how do you hug someone over a telephone, Right. Right. So that's how I feel about all, because man, I've worked with Elixir Strings for 23 years. I've worked with Voodoo Lab for 23 years. I've worked with, you know, a lot of companies for a long time, even though people called me a a gear whore or a jumper or whatever. I've worked with companies for a long time. Right. And and so 
but then again, man, I still, to this day, am like a giddy little kid being, being able to find something that gives me inspiration to want to create something new, a new piece of music. Like I'm, when I sent you that song, it was over a fuzz pedal I was sent to do a video on. Right. You know, and my goodness, what, look what popped out. It was like, gosh, I hadn't used it. I mean, I love Octofuzz pedals. I got a bunch of them, but I hadn't written anything for them in a long while. Sure. So the fact that that just fell out of me because I was so inspired by that pedal, that, man, is what makes me like the giddy little kid again. Yeah, I hear that. So I'm always so grateful for the endorsers, man, and always grateful for the, you know, I, I know some people say, well, Johnny moved to Virginia, his career's over. No, my career's not over. You know, and I and I guess, Greg, you, what you've shown too, bud, is that you don't have to live in Nashville or Austin to pursue a music career and love it the entire time. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, people have always said, dude, you can be Johnny Highland from anywhere. And I'm realizing that that's the truth. It's not about uh, your environment or, or it's not about the state you live in or the city you live in. It's about the environment around you and what you're trying to stay inspired by and keeping keeping the music alive, man, because we got to keep Telecaster music alive. Yeah, we really do. Now, granted, I know you're playing the, you know, Reverend and I'm playing Kiesel and but we're still playing T-style guitars, brother. Absolutely. So we got to keep this thing alive, man, because right now it seems like our music industry is is really throwing T-styles out the window for the most part in today's mainstream music. Right. And that bothers me, brother. It bothers me. So Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But we got to change that, man. We got to keep it going. Absolutely. And it yep. shall be done. We, we will it not be shall. stopped. The Gristle Man himself... And the old Gipper with the cowboy hat in Virginia here. We're going to keep that going, folks. That's so don't right. ever think it's going to die. <laughs> yep. Well, listen, my friend, thanks so much for taking time again to, to talk. I, I apologize that our, our other chat was a uh, victim of some technical malfeasance, but I'm glad we were able to rearrange this. And uh, always well, a pleasure to chat. And I hope to see and play with you again soon. That would be a lot of fun. I know. And Greg, I got to tell you, brother, thank you for what you do with this, man. Thank you for having me a part of the show. Thanks to everybody watching and supporting Greg and myself on Facebook and all the things we do. Because without you, we couldn't do what we do. That's a so, fact. So keep well going said. to see Greg live. Keep watching him on social media and do the same for me. And just know how much we love and appreciate each and every one of you. And yes, Greg, man, I'll always be a fan of yours, brother. And I'll always keep watching myself. And, uh, you just keep doing what you do, my brother, because there's much. only one There's only one Greg Cock out there. <laughs> Same to you, my friend. There's only Absolutely. one of you, my brother. So, yeah, <laughs> nobody else does it like you, my brother. <laughs> You're too so, kind, my friend. Well, listen, a pleasure as always. Let's talk soon. Have a good one. You do the same, Greg. Thank you so much, brother. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And, of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Cock here. Thanks so much for tuning in.